I have a, uh, <clears throat> a warm spot for upstart girls. When Merle and I had young daughters at home, we read and reread books about Ramona and Scout and Anne of Green Gables and Pippi Longstocking and Madeline and Eloise and baby Moses's brave older sister Miriam who looked out for him. Upstart girls tend to grow up to be strong women. From the Bible, think of Esther, Jesus' mother Mary, and more Marys in Jesus' world, and Martha. They took risks, often big ones. But back to our story about Naaman, the army officer who had a wretched skin disease. You, you noticed the girl in the story that Laura read. If you hadn't, it wouldn't be surprising because this very important man who's clearly rattled because he's experiencing something he can't control sucks up almost all of the oxygen in the story. Clearly, Naaman isn't used to being inconvenienced or not getting full attention when he needs and wants something. The guy is flat-out blustery and demanding. This unnamed girl has only two lines, and she states them as a wish to Naaman's wife. If only my lord, she means Naaman, the one who now owns her, if only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. She doesn't ask an aggressive question, nor put up a challenge, nor try to shame the man she's observing. What she said was more of amusing from her own heart, her own experience. And that was it. The story spins on without her. But she made the critical connection between Naaman, the tough guy from Aramea, and Elisha, a prophet from Israel, two men from extraordinarily different worlds who would likely not have had a connection without this young girl. We don't know how old she was. We do know life expectancy then did not begin to match ours, but she was old enough to be a helper to the military officer Naaman's wife. So maybe she was 10, 11, 12. Any 10, 11, 12-year-old girls or boys among us this morning? Leah? Yeah? About these people's ages. Some of the children you saw up front this morning. What we do know is that this girl was a captive, not an immigrant. She had been taken by force. She wasn't in Naaman's house because she chose to go to another country. When the Arameans raided Israel, she was taken prisoner. So now she was living in this highbrow home in a foreign country, probably without any of her own people nearby. Good chance she didn't have either her family or her faith community as support and backup anymore. She is on her own. Before her capture, she must have been well-trained in her faith. Her life was probably not privileged. In fact, meager as it may have been, it had likely been wrecked in the raid. But she somehow still believed that there was a transcendent power who could do something to help the man who captured her. 
And she had an impulse to share what she believed because she thought that would lead to healing this highly irritated man. What had she seen or experienced that flashed into her mind and made her step up with her wish, her almost suggestion, her if only? And she took a sizable risk as she watched Naaman ranting and complaining about his misery and the embarrassment of his wretched skin disease. She didn't know for sure if what she suggested would work, if Elisha, a servant of her people's God, would be able to help, let alone actually heal this intimidating commander. Her, her, Her honor was sort of like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he seemed to have a very fragile ego. What if Elijah wouldn't or couldn't help? He had every reason to be upset. His country had just been overrun by these people. What had happened in this young girl's young life to have so impressed her about what Elisha could do? She apparently had no doubt that her God was still loving. So that even in spite of her own misfortune of having been taken captive by an invading army, she gently urged her owner to contact Elisha the man from her home country, which Naaman and his troops had just run over. What had she heard or witnessed that so stuck with her? Despite all the upheaval in her young life and that she was living with in this moment, she knew who she was. She knew where and to whom she belonged. Why was her first impulse to put this angry, violent man in touch with her healing God when she had not been protected from losing her country and her family and her own loved ones. She had also somehow learned how to speak up, even though she was different in every way from the people she was now living with. How did she have the nerve to address these intimidating people without any push from a grown-up? She wasn't important or rich or well-known. She had none of that to fall back on. Was she credentialed? No. Was she male? No. Had she lettered? Probably not. Did she do enough? I don't don't know. Naaman seemed to have monstrous insecurities and a pretty tender ego. But thanks to a tag team, from this young girl to Naaman's wife to the king to Elisha the prophet to Naaman's two body men who helped him get past his insulted feelings, He finally dropped himself into the unimpressive Jordan River seven times and walked out with baby skin. This girl must have been deeply loved and nurtured by her family and her faith community. How else would she have had the wherewithal, the memory, the sheer guts to refer to a man who under unusual circumstances, who under usual circumstances would have likely been kicked aside by this officer. Good chance she had never practiced for this moment, but she had been loved and prepared in fundamental ways. Did she ever get thanked by Naaman and his wife? I doubt it. But she leaves quite a legacy. Here we are, thinking about her and her conviction and strength more than two and a half thousand years later. She mentioned her idea. She stepped up. She reached across. 
And Naaman, after he got over himself, was healed. We never know who will make a critical connection for us. We never know when we will make a vital connection for somebody else. A bridge across. Maybe it's a simple comment or a question we thought we had just tossed off. Something we hadn't rehearsed, uh, except in a way our whole life had prepared us for that moment. What we say and do matters. Has anyone ever told you something you said or did that you have no memory of? But whatever, whatever it was has stayed with them. We're all part of the supporting cast for each other's lives. And sometimes it even happens secondhand, as it did with the young captive girl and the military honcho. They seem not to have spoken directly about any of this. I recently spent four evenings with a bunch of four and five-year-olds right here in our Bible school front bench. These kids really touched me. They were just being themselves. In my group, they didn't all know each other. And I watched them relate to each other and to the adults around them. They asked questions. They came up with ideas. They together really enlarged on a lot of the games and the music and the dramas and the art projects they were doing. I was, I was entertained and touched deeply and almost overwhelmed by what these short people are capable of now. Not just when they get big, but now. There were definitely girls with this young woman's fiber and insight in my Bible school group of four and five-year-olds, and boys like the one Isaiah read about. They can carry the world forward in redemptive ways. They are already on their way. And we have a chance, here and now, to love them into our community and to be their friends in their faith development. It's too easy to overlook the kids in our faith community. The story of Jesus feeding the crowd with somebody's lunch, which Isaiah read, appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but speaking of being overlooked, only the book of John includes a passing reference to a boy who brought bread and fish, which became enough to feed more than 5,000 people. Just like the girl we've been thinking about, he isn't named either. And this time we don't even get to hear him speak. Who knows, he may have been trying, but with the crowd and the numerous suggestions coming from the hosting disciples, his little voice was drowned out, but there he was. And he knew exactly how many fish and how many loaves of bread were packed in his knapsack. I think too often we tend to think of kids as naturally selfish. But we've all seen children look out for their friends who have less than they do, who empty their banks or offer their favorite toy or stuffy without pressure from their parents, who help a friend who's struggling who take another child's hand and pull them into the circle. One such story in our family involves my brother Kenny, who was maybe, maybe four when this happened. Our church had a tradition of all-day meetings, once or so each year. And we always had a potluck lunch together on those occasions. On this late Sunday afternoon, everything was wrapping up, and people were carrying their lunch leftovers to their cars, 
and Kenny was streaking around the parking lot having sat way too long. And along came Catherine, who had brought cupcakes for the meal, and she was on her car with what was left. Want a cupcake, Kenny? She called. He pulled up short, paused for a moment, and then said, there are four in our family. <laughs> Kids do that. Who knows what instructions this boy's mom or dad called after him when he left home that morning. I'm guessing he was an in intentionally sent with more than he could eat himself. But he had been entrusted with a big lunch, and he managed that resource or gift or whatever the right word is for it breathtakingly well. How did he learn that? He seems to be unsupervised. Why was he even in the crowd? Because somebody thought he should experience this community, maybe meet Jesus, at least begin to be shaped by being with people who were drawn to Jesus. And then he got involved. He didn't try to hide his lunch. He must have spoken up too. Hey, I have plenty. What did he go home with? Probably a sense of belonging, a sense of being needed, the satisfaction of having eaten with friends. Would he want to go next time? Good chance. Do you need some hope about whether there's a future for the world, for the church? Keep bringing the kids to our gatherings. Make sure they hear our honest conversations and see our actions. Those times when we grown-ups tremble about the troubles we're facing. Those times when we're able to be more confident. They should see both. Invite them to ask questions. And then honor them with serious give and take. They may not always act like it, but they are watching and listening most of the time. I don't think we adults are here primarily to protect or insulate our kids from life's struggles and uncertainties. Instead, a major part of our job, I think, is to help them learn how to manage disappointments and struggles, how to have their faith and ours grow deeper when we've run out of answers and solutions, all in the embrace of a faith community. Neither the girl who connected tough guy Naaman with God's unusual man, nor the boy who ended up sharing his food with a crowd when he thought he was just going to a big community event with his own food for the day, neither of them were the sheltered children of families who worked to keep them far away from trouble because they wanted them to have all the advantages possible. No. Somehow, they had been introduced to weep with those who weep. They had learned about bearing each other's burdens. They must have been exposed to life's troubles for them to have stepped up as they did. They must have had examples of persons near them who these kids saw weathering hard times, living with unanswered questions, managing difficult, even unfair experiences for them to have done what they did without any trusted parents or adults prompting them in those critical moments. How did that happen? 
they must have had an unmistakable experience with God's determined and enveloping love to have not become bitter and suspicious and overcome with fear. We must do the same for our kids, those in our household families and those in our faith family. Let's bring them with us, close to the world's troubles, while standing alongside them as they grow and learn. We need to be sure our children have firsthand experiences with God's care, that love that extends to and through the most difficult times that life brings. And then let's also invite them to lead worship and take a turn in the nursery. The little boy in Jesus' crowd was already showing signs of understanding that what he had was available to the whole group. The young girl spontaneously wished God's healing love for her enemy. Both of these kids were deeply a part of faith communities, one torn away from hers, the other among the 5,000 swarming all over a hillside to hear more from Jesus himself. These children were already figuring out how to live with what they had been taught to believe. Let's not miss our chances to be bridges to others and to keep on nurturing our kids while learning from them also.